0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a Holistic and High-Performance Approach. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with Chief Information Security Officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and visiting professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness podcast series. Today I'll be talking with Nadia L. Furtasi, human readiness and resilience expert, and former NATO senior executive. NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It is an international security hub and is one of the world's major international institutions. It is a political and a military alliance of 28 member countries from Europe and North America. Nadia, welcome. It's great to have you as a guest on the Cybersecurity Readiness podcast series. Thanks for making time to share your expertise with the listeners. The theme for our discussion today is the role of emotional intelligence in building and sustaining a healthy and high-performing information security culture. I'd like to begin by asking you to reflect on your experience at NATO.
2: Thank you, Dave, and thank you for having me on today. It's my absolute pleasure. So I've worked at uh, NATO, the world's largest security and crisis management organization, for nearly two decades. That's a a long time. And I worked in various uh, countries and posts, but always within the digital transformation and cybersecurity arena. I always um, held strategic customer relations and governance position now how does this relate to what i currently do as you know nato was founded the, uh, just after at the beginning uh, uh, at the end of the second world war at the beginning of the cold war and where state sponsored attacks or where a state enemy was very prevalent so our culture our security culture was ingrained to help us Uh, not fall for social engineering in tax in the sense of espionage. So I was also deployed in in the field, but we always received a lot of training and awareness, uh, programs on how not to fall for emotional manipulation techniques. So what is social engineering? It's basically uh, criminals, not necessarily hackers because there are a lot of ethical hackers. But criminals trying to manipulate people to get information out of them so they can hack into systems now in our case it was to get information out of us so they can use it for espionage or get an, 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 uh, competitive advantage because of these state-to-state relations so in our culture being very aware of security was a given, right? It was really part of our DNA, which I think is very important. And this was with me for 20 years. And uh, how does that, so after uh, 18 years, I decided to, uh, to change and to resign and, and build my own EQ consultancy business and really help people and organizations deal with these digital disruption. What do I mean with digital disruptions? Because people think when we talk about the digital decade, it's a bit overreactive, but how many people are working online are processing payments or processing data exchanging data online, especially after COVID right so and uh, with all the, the. the challenges uh, that are going on, you know, people's resilience and organizational resilience to stay, not only survive, but thrive, is is challenging, so this is what I I do, and uh, I use, I leverage the practical crisis management resilience experience and readiness in NATO. We were either in conflict or preparing to be in one, so exercise and readiness was our DNA, our bread and butter. But I also worked with people from 40 different countries at all levels. So emotional intelligence was key, because at one part, you have the technology. How do you get people to use the technology that is safe and secure and it advances the organization at the same time, right? And there are a lot of different uh, departments and and business units when we look at the private sector uh, that have a stake in it. So in our case, in our agency, security was responsibility for all. And I wanted to bring that in in my work uh, with the private sector currently and, and small businesses. Now, there is a lot of misconception about emotional intelligence, because when we hear emotional intelligence, we think, oh, this, you know, emotions, they don't belong in the workplace, or we're very rational, etc. Now, I, I recommend uh, uh, your listeners to look up Lisa Feldman Barrett, who is an author about how emotions are made, secret life of the brain. She's one of the top percent, one top percent cited neuroscientist and psychologist who really has a lot of uh, uh, material and resource to dispel this myth. right? So how C explains, and what I also use in my work, I use a scientifically validated model, that the feelings is very different than emotions. Feelings is when our brain makes sense of our energy levels. So imagine you're working in an enterprise model, and you have different business units. That all need amount of resources to be able to sustain the organization now if acquisition has less resources than legal, for example, the marketing department or the resource development. is going to be an ad- a resource deficit or a resource overload right same thing with our body, so when our brain perceives that it is um, uh, under high levels of stress or, or something is not right, it creates a body energy deficit. And this is when we experience feelings of uh, uh, fear, of frustration, of you know, general negative emotions. And emotions are actually constructed by our bias, by our uh, stereotype beliefs, by our formative years, by our experiences, what we learned as emotional behaviors, which is different in different culture and is not universal. Now, why is this so important when it comes to cyber? First, if we want to change mindsets and implement cyber hygiene, The the language is important, right? Because if we talk to someone who's an information security specialist or a technology, they may get very excited about cyber. They don't necessarily see it as something dark or negative or complicated. Someone who has no exposure to cyber or only correlates with the ongoing ransomware attack and all the cyber breaches may fear a lot of fear, right? People who I loved in your book, you refer to people who, you know, developers, for example, of applications. They want to get it out on the market as soon as possible. Well, the security people want to uh, keep it off the market as uh, as long as possible, right? So they, we have different concepts uh, uh, about cybersecurity and cyber safety in general. It is only normal to feel discomfort when we're dealing with a new concept. And how do you get people to do things differently in a way that secures not only the surface, not only the product, but also the user environment and the way they work and live with the online world is to help them become comfortable with the discomfort. And this is where emotional intelligence comes in. It is relating to the immediate challenges to the behavioral aspects of people. Cognitive intelligence is long-term strategic. And and you need both actually. And some people are more equipped with it because they've learned it. Other people who have trained to be very cerebral, and this is especially f- true for the steam workforce. If you've been trained to be very technical, logical, and uh, you know data conscious, for example, then it's a little bit more difficult to put words or to understand how your emotions affect
1: your behavior. Great. Fantastic. Thanks for that uh, introduction, that primer on emotional intelligence, the significance of emotional intelligence um, in bringing about the desired information security culture. Uh, As you you know that when we look at cybersecurity, the challenges with cybersecurity, um, we have to understand it from a people, process and technology standpoint. The good news is there are lots of sophisticated technologies out there. The good news is there are great process recommendations, great frameworks out there. The challenge lies in the human factor. And you spoke to that when you said that some of us are better trained than others or are better um, have better abilities than others to deal with uncertainty, to deal with, um, deal with challenges that are not within our domain of expertise or, or interest. So therefore, managing the human factor effectively to build and sustain a strong cybersecurity culture is easier said than done. It is often something organizations try to stay away from because it's very hard to show immediate results. The ROI is not very tangible. But as more and more executives are recognizing, at the end of the day, it's really about execution. You can have the best plan. But if you are not able to execute to precision to the plan, you are unlikely to be very s- successful, especially in the context of cybersecurity, where an organization needs to be able to sustain an element of stability in their management and performance of the cybersecure defense measures. To be able to act and uh, perform in a precise and consistent manner over a period of time, you need the right kind of culture that needs to become part of the organizational DNA. And that's where someone with your kind of expertise comes in and can be of immense benefit to organizations. Who are trying to understand people, human mindset, how to bring about changes in human behavior. So um, let's get a little specific because I'm sure our listeners are, are thinking, yeah, this is all good, but what are your recommendations? So, from a recommendation standpoint, um, let's have this discussion organized along some of the success factors that I talk about in my book, and I appreciate you having read the book. Um, and we, if we look at it from the standpoint of the three high-performance cultural traits of commitment, preparedness, and discipline, if you could take one of them, let's say commitment, and speak to that in, in terms of how do you get the organizational leadership, how do you get organizational members at all levels more committed to achieving a high level of cybersecurity performance.
2: Yes, thank you, Dave. And I I really enjoyed the the book. Um, Everyone talks about leadership, right? It needs to start at the top, but what does that look like, right? And we forget that top leadership are also human beings as well, right? And one of the biggest challenges we face at NATO and many organizations face is, we don't want to change people. We want to do get them to do things differently on the jo- uh, things on the job for a sustainable period of time. So uh, emotional intelligent leadership is critical. I think there is a lot of focus on building agile systems, on building agile technology. But how do we build agile people? Right? People are not programs that, that uh, uh, can be... Um, Flexible, there there are different levels of flexibility. One excellent model called the Kubler-Ross model really explains actually the different emotional states people go through before they and when they go through a loss, right? It was developed for grief, but the same emotions apply when change happens. Now at the t- and i'll give an example of my own time when we were facing a lot of geopolitical uh, uh, uncertainty after 9/11 after you know what happened also uh, in the um, in the um, border with Russia and Ukraine that put a lot of pressure on us in NATO and also created a lot of uncertainty and challenging time, especially because cyber was really used as part of hybrid warfare tactic. So we had a new general manager coming in at the time. He he was from the Pentagon, brilliant, brilliant man. And uh, he really had this, uh, he had the right. he surrounded himself with the right people, but he also had a people-centric leadership and a people-centric mindset. So what he did in terms of, you know, demonstrating it from the top in emotional intelligent leadership, he understood that the church, the chief service line, so the people who were accountable and responsible for delivering the service and delivering the product, there was too much bureaucracy and too much power distance between them and himself, right? And so he he created a matrix organization as much as possible. So the people who were responsible and accountable for the full life cycle of the services they, they were responsible of the product, including you know, security that was just ingrained and cyber safety was ingrained in every aspect, uh uh were directly responsible to to, to them. What did that create? It created a sense of empowerment in these people. Right? They were seen, they were uh, um, validated they were held accountable they were given more uh, empowerment right and, and, and they, it increased their buy-in. Why should they go all the way right It increased their kind of purpose the getting up in the in the morning and really you know moving in towards the same direction. The other uh, element was he appointed the chief operating officer, who was also another brilliant man, who had not only a, a high level of expertise in the technical arena and the business, brilliant diplomat. He came from diplomacy as well and had very good relationships with the national delegations, with the ambassadors, with the decision makers. Because when you look at policy, and strategy and governance, right? And you can compare it with the C-suite in the business arena. There's often a disconnect when it comes to the information security culture. Not that they don't understand, it's just they have many other fires and business risks going on. So these relationships with him made him very credible and they had his trust, which made it easier to actually navigate building this culture within within the very uncertain and challenging environment we were working in. So both of these very senior people, right, they had high levels of cognitive intelligence, they had high levels of political intelligence, they had high level of technical intelligence, business intelligence, but what made the organization shift our agency, shift our people, you know, the way we work shift is the emotional intelligence part. is the people right you need to inspire people to guide to hold them accountable right emotional intelligence doesn't mean uh uh, uh, um, how do i say soft right being very not at all right a true leader can listen to everyone can take into consideration but ultimately takes the decision based on what he believes is best for the organization on the information is available right it's really ultimately people want to feel heard and validated right so they can show up and with a lot of the work that I do often I I hear you know uh, people that just they just they are tired of so many changes I would add, add one more element which is very crucial is communication we over perhaps we focus a lot on communication with our external stakeholders our customers our shareholders but you have to start inside out. When there's a lot of uncertainty outside, it acts, exaggerates the uncertainty within the organization. So internal communication policies and transparency, even when you don't know, one of the best leaders I've worked with and I see also my clients are the ones that are vulnerable. Doesn't mean that they share all their personal stuff, but they say when things are not working, and that they don't have the answer immediately, and they are looking, right, and they're involving the people are the ones that they get the most support from the workforce. Right. See? And, and that is very important. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, I think you said something which is so, so important. You mentioned about being vulnerable. Uh, we often make the mistake of thinking that a leader who's always exuding, Great confidence, great belief, um, and a leader, a strong leader, should not um, show any kind of vulnerability. But to your point, vulnerability—the way I look at it—is essentially a feeling of, you know, a little bit maybe maybe the word paranoia makes sense. That there's always an element of paranoia that what could happen that could break the current defense are we really well secure or is there anything missing and that kind of a mindset is helpful because it always keeps you on your toes and it doesn't allow you to be complacent so maybe what i i was getting at is vulnerability can often come across as like a, a reflection of weakness but vulnerability can also be interpreted as somebody who is not complacent, who always believes in a high level of preparedness. And that's something that I've also found in my research that leadership can play a hugely important role in not only mobilizing organization-wide support towards the goals and the actions, but also help the organization reach a high level of preparedness. Another point you made, and you made it very well, it's a very powerful statement. You said, build a culture of empowerment, not fear. And that speaks to taking a very positive approach to many things cyber, including cyber communication. And time and time again, when I talk to senior executives, when I review the literature, One of the consistent good practices is about letting the users know what they could do to further secure the organization. So taking the approach of saying what you can do and not taking the approach of what you can't do. Yes, that's a fine line, but there's a way of saying things in a very positive way and still being able to communicate the things that users should be wary about. So it's a fine line, and it can be done by very skilled people. And you talked about the leadership that you've come across with a very high degree of a variety of different types of allegiance. Moving on to another uh, question I have for you. And that is, you work for an organization like NATO, very security-driven organization. So you would expect security to be high on their priority when it comes to culture. But in a traditional private sector organization, where you yourself mention often the focus or priority of the executives are on realizing the business goals, their mission, And security is not that. Security is something, unfortunately, they have to deal with, they wish they didn't. So in that kind of an environment, how do you get, whether it's the leadership or whether it's the organization as a whole, how do you get the focus turned towards security, whether it's growing recognition, that security is also a very important organizational capability, is also a very important organizational competency. How do you get that realization etched into the organization?
2: That's a very good point and uh, I'll um, I'll say one word and then I'll give an anecdote to explain uh, that word and then give give my own thoughts. Vision, (laughs) right? You need to have a vision and right, for your organization now. why is that important? Let me go back to, uh, to something uh, we dealt at NATO, right? Because NATO, our, our mandate was article you know, uh, 5, uh, is, is collective defense, right? And uh, I don't know if you remember when 9/11 came uh, about. there was a lot of discussion why was NATO not more on the forefront in countering terrorism. And uh, the, the risk for terrorist attacks was very evident and very prevalent in, in across European cities and in North America. Uh, now, the obvious reason uh, is it was not within our mandate or primary mandate. You had organizations like the UN and other organizations which was in their mandate, and we were always in support. So we were active, but it wasn't our primary focus. Everyone who worked at NATO and the culture was very much still aware of the Cold War and remember the Second World War. The impact of a nuclear attack, right, would be far more detrimental than a terrorist attack. And I know it sounds perhaps a little bit harsh when you hear it because it's not statistics, but we, I think a lot of people in leadership within NATO understood the vision of building a safe and secure transatlantic uh, democracy. We take our freedom for granted, right? We forget that there are capabilities out there, right, that can eradicate entire cities. So the risk for what we were protecting, 1 billion citizens, was much higher. So every organization should ask themselves, right, right, what is the risk? Because the capabilities are there, and you don't need to be a sophisticated cyber criminal. To participate in a ransomware service model and just you know get as fast money as possible. but even more challenging and 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 again I don't want to play into fear, but it's just being aware is non-sponsored uh, state cyber attacks and even inspired spot uh, states sponsored attacks. There are many different reasons why someone does cyber crime. So every organization needs to understand what is the vision for their organization in the 21st century it is highly digitized. What would happen if our most critical infrastructure would go down? What would happen if 5 million, and you have many case studies in your book, customers' data, shareholders' data gets lost? You don't want to think about it because, again, it is not very tangible. We live very short-term focused, right? Okay, what is in the immediate? And when you're driven by the immediate and don't include and balance it with the long-term vision, your preparedness strategies and your ability to recover because now we have to assume we will be compromised. Every organization, they don't assume that they can't. They are compromised. Their survival rate is likely to be very low. There's even a brilliant article in the Financial Times about this. In this... And, and this is also how you get confidence from your shareholders, from your customers that you know this is, you know what to do when you there is a cyber breach right and then you can recover and protect their data in the most uh, uh, less riskful way as possible. So I this is what I would give away is really understand how much are you balancing long-term vision with short-term vision and how can you, explain cyber risk in people's map of the world. Example, a developer wants to bring out their uh, app uh, as fast as possible. They've put their intellectual property right. They've put their blood and sweat. So if you're just gonna tell them we can't put it off because there are still some security updates missing, they are not going to resonate with it. But if you are explaining that if the app is on the market, and someone can actually replicate the app or steal the data and actually bring it out earlier in a better version without, you know, this is going on all the time, that will get their attention, right? So how can you speak in a way that security is seen as an enabler and not a barrier? It also requires informi- cybersecurity and information technologies to compromise in a way that to have an understanding what is the minimum required security requirements right minimal security requirements we had in, in NATO uh, and and uh, understand that some security requirements are nice to have but perhaps not necessary but they will uh, prevent the developer or the marketing or the research and development team to bring out their application this requires open dialogue this requires listening to each other without feeling personally you know um, attacked or it's fault. Everyone has a valid point. How do we get there from here? And this requires, again, the vision uh,
1: strategy. Absolutely. Wonderful. You you again highlighted so many important things. Let me see if I can remember a few to add to it and also ask you to expand on a couple of other things as well. Um, You spoke to the importance of recognizing the consequences of cyber attacks. Organizations can go under. Organizations can go bankrupt. In fact, there is survey data that showcases that 60% of small to medium-sized businesses are known to go under after they experience a cyber attack. Even for large companies, reputation is at stake. And there are many other consequences. It is interesting. um, I was having this discussion with the CEO of a billion dollar insurance company, and I asked him a similar question. I said, how do you get your peers in other organizations to be equally committed to cybersecurity as an enabler? As you said, very nicely you said, security is an enabler, not a barrier. His spontaneous response was, Dave, I'm assuming people read what's coming out every day in the media. There is one story or the other about an attack and the consequence of the attack. If after that, a senior executive doesn't recognize how important cyber is, how important cybersecurity competency is. I don't know what to tell you. And I couldn't agree more. But having said that, the unfortunate reality is every leadership has certain goals. They have to report to stakeholders. Um, So there are challenges in their work life. So I understand if often the focus deviates away from having the best possible cyber defense in place. But then there is a change in the mindset. There is a a shift in top executive attention and commitment. And fortunately, what I've been noticing, I've been studying this shift for the last 10 years. It's going in the right direction. And that's very, very encouraging.
2: May I uh, just intervene or or say something to what you just said? Please, uh, please. I, I just want to add another perspective, I think, you know, uh, I saw this at NATO all the time, I see this, we assume, we assume people know, right, but we forget, we see the world through our mental model, right, we have our own experiences, on top of that, the average human brain can f- make decisions maximum seven, eight at a time, so if you assume <laughs> Right, this thumb of rule in NATO, never assume, someone knows, right, is not to assume, because these people, it doesn't mean, you know, sometimes we even speak to them in a very patronizing way, c, c- sweet CFO or, you know, CEO, they know that cyber is important, right? If they don't read the news, they are reminded by others on a constant basis. But the way sometimes we speak or when I read some articles, it's very patronizing, right? It's like they don't know. What they tend to forget is that, you know, these leaders or these functions have a lot of different fires going on at the same time. Our human brain can only focus on so much. We believe, multitasking is a gift, it is not a gift at all. And Daniel, uh, Dan Kewan, Nobel Prize winner, wrote an excellent book about this, slow thinking, slow and fast. I don't know if you've read it. So it, I think from that perspective is to communicate from people's map of the world. Just because it's obvious to us, because it feels so obvious and we assume, it doesn't mean it's obvious someone else trigger the emotional intensity you need that matches people's beliefs so you can change their behavior this is what i focus on just because we speak to someone how many times we keep rap- ramp- ramping up the statistics which is important but statistics alone are not going to change people's hearts right you need to find and and this and this, and this is actually a whole function a whole art it takes investment it takes effort to learn how to communicate from someone else's map of the world and to really, you know, think about the outcome you want and the words you're going to use that really get people to actually retain attention, especially now when the average attention span apparently is no longer than seven seconds. So I think it is, it is, I I agree to a certain extent, but I also think that the way we communicate in general, and especially when it comes to cyber risk, we cannot assume that people will read 50 page incident response plan or crisis management procedures and remember them in their map of the world. And when a cyber breach is uh, is taking place, you cannot tell them, well, in the service level agreement we had or in the in the document you signed off, it was clearly stated under paragraph 3.5. We go into survival mode, fear mode. Our brain capacity is focused on keeping us safe. So our, you know, we go then in very shortcut mental models. And I think it's important to explain, to practice this, right? So people don't take it necessarily very defensive, but really understand the human element and the behavior. And then come up with strategies and the way of communicating in a way that gets people Not necessarily to change their mind. Changing mindset is very difficult, right? But to change response options, do something differently because you know it will advance your organizations and keep the organization safe and and prepared and resilient.
1: Yeah, you know, I wish to re-emphasize what you just said about do not assume when you're communicating because everyone has different experiences, different mental maps, And they would interpret a message. They could interpret a message differently. It brings back uh, another interesting story. So um, there was this admiral, um, Hyman Rickover, who was credited with running the U.S. Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program very successfully for 30-some years. And he... Was able to build an organizational culture anchored on six key principles. And they were integrity, depth of knowledge, procedural compliance, forceful backup, questioning attitude, and formality in communications. Now, let me speak to formality in communications. I believe the way it worked in the nuclear Navy. When you receive an order from your superior, you're supposed to repeat that order verbatim before you execute it. Essentially, the process was meant to be foolproof, so nothing gets lost. There's no communication leakage, no communication loss. And maybe it's an extreme approach. Maybe it works in a, uh, in a military organization, but there is something to be learned from that, taken away from that for even the private sector, for even the government organizations, that when you are communicating, it is also your responsibility to make sure that the person receiving your your message understands it the way you want it to be understood. But as we know, unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. We all experience mass communications, email blasts, one-page email on security with a lot of detail. And immediately when I see those, it, it tells me, okay, here we go, check the box. A communication was required as per certain regulations, certain requirement, and the organization is complying with it. So yes, you are complying with the regulation, but are you effectively doing it? The answer is probably no, because when I see a one-page email, I generally tend to overlook it unless it is customized, it is tailored, and it is speaking to my needs. And you spoke to that when you said, when you are communicating with people, when you're trying to get them to see things in a different way, you have to be very skilled about how you pitch it so they can relate to it. And that's a training in in itself. And that should not be um, considered obvious. Oh, communication, that's fine. As long as we have the tools in place, we have hired the Uh, you know, the the right kind of professional expertise, we are all good to go. We are not all good to go because when there is a breach, and more often than not, it is because of a phishing campaign, the people who get breached are not the ones who are trained in a cybersecurity certificate program. They are people who are there to do their job, which is not security but then they also have a certain responsibility to perform their jobs and also comply with the security guidelines. To get them to recognize that, to get them to do it well, it requires practice. In a previous podcast, I had an eminent professor talk about his simulation program, simulating organizational decision-making under stress under time pressure and as you said it is one thing to plan it is one thing to prepare but then when you are in action when you are on the court you are playing to use a tennis metaphor you are all by yourself you are having to make quick decisions on your feet and those decisions have consequences the only way of getting better at it is by doing it over and over again. What does that mean from a cybersecurity preparedness standpoint? Running different types of simulations to the best, you know, to the extent feasible and possible. Every company has their constraints, and I recognize that. But, you know, these were some thoughts that came to mind as you were speaking. Let me ask you a question. Um, As we were having our sidebar by way of prep for this talk, you shared some very powerful uh, quotes, if I may. And one of them was, and this speaks to what we are talking right now, practice reason over fear. And another one I want to bring into the discussion where you said, use empathy to counter social engineering attacks. Can you speak to them?
2: Yes. Um, let me start start first with practice, reason over fear. And I will use a very unusual analogy, but stick with me so you understand. Now imagine, uh, and I'm going to take you as an example, Dave, if you don't mind. Imagine you're not feeling very well today, you're a bit low on energy, you know, your immune system is not on top, so you're already not at your best state. And then you turn around and there is a tiger, predator in the corner of your office, And let's assume it's not a domesticated one. It's one that is really going to uh, chase you. So your brain is going to signal to your body extreme danger. You're going to use all your energy and run as fast as you can, I hope. Imagine the predator is the colleague sending you the email, is the continuous attacks that you receive on your screen. Is the fear-based leadership because you're afraid to do something wrong because of the culture. It's meeting your deadlines, whatever it is. The problem with fear, right? It serves a function. We, we are human beings to keep ourselves safe, right? So if we go outside, it can uh, see a car. And so we can you know, uh, protect ourselves and not get hit by a car. The problem is, our brain constantly perceives things as fear to put us in a chronic state of stress, which has disastrous consequences about on our ability to make decisions, on our ability to manage our energy, our focus. And we get. I wrote a blog for Global Cyber Alliance and had statistics in there for the UK and the US how many people are distracted and, and lack of focus, and how that correlates with falling for social engineering for phishing attacks. Because, which brings me to your second point, you use empathy uh, for uh, mitigating social engineering attacks. Now, empathy is another overused buzzword. It is Uh, very difficult to exercise because if you read the book of dan keohan slow thinking slow thinking fast it is another part of the of the system it really requires being sensitive to other people's needs and and um, and emotions criminals they use (laughs) the same emotional manipulation techniques right to trigger either emotions of fear So if someone is worried about their health, they will use specific language related to COVID to get them to click on a spoofed account or medical record, whatever it is. Someone worries about taxes, right? it will use words or uh, spoofed accounts to do that. So they really use words and pretext to speak to people's fear. The opposite is also true. There are a lot of, one of the prevailing challenge currently is loneliness, isolation, right, because of the pandemic, but even before, but it's just exaggerated it. So unfortunately, criminals with no ethical standards use to uh, prey on these emotions, to create emotions of trust, right, to build this relationship. There's another excellent book by, um, uh, Robert Cialdini, The Psychology of Persuasion, 1984, where he lists six principles of uh, persuasion scarcity, authority, commitment, consistency, liking, and consensus. And liking. When we like someone, our defense mechanisms go down. Right? The first time when we see someone, we ask four questions subconsciously Who is this? What do they want? How long does it take? And are they a threat? So they know to. to to use tactics to lower people's defense mechanisms so they can use these uh, uh, techniques. Now, it is important to be aware and to use empathy, not to be afraid or to be paranoid, but to recognize, because let me give an example, why emotional intelligence and empowerment is important. If you have an organization where people don't feel empowered, if you have an assistant or a receptionist or a support staff or customer support agents, that will uh, is asked whether through email whether through deep fake technology uh, by replicating the voice of the ceo to make a million dollar transfer in bitcoins which happens right if they fear the reaction of their ceo or the leadership being reprimanded or disciplined they will act based on that impulse right so it is really important to understand not only empathy but emotional intelligence or the human element to not be paranoia right fear is just a consequence of what we don't know when we when there is a gap in our mind the mind doesn't like it so it goes into survival mode remember the tiger and everyone is is is, so, so many people currently i don't want to say everyone are under constant pursuit of a predator, but it's not a predator, but the effect is the same, right? And, and you can follow Andrew Huberman, Stanford professor and neuroscientist who has a load of research and podcasts about the effect on this, on, on the brain and how we need to create cultures where empowerment, where, you know, of course, stress is healthy in a certain way. It, it is all about how we perceive stress, but it's all about chronic fear, chronic stress, we need to find the right balance of, of intense emotion that people are alert, but also, OK, practical, how do I react now? right? And, and this is something that, that needs to be the exercise. And one last thing I will say based on our just previous discussion on how do you communicate, because one of the challenges we face at NATO is a lot of project managers, scientists, IT, cybersecurity, rightfully didn't think it was their job to become PR, communication experts. So an organization should really invest in a person or an office I was part of the office that actually gathered all the information, translated in a very structured way for decision makers, for the you know people that needed to know, for the resources community. Committee. So we took the information and tailored it in different messaging in people's language. defense planning policy committee the resources and governance the military committee the the ambassadors nato's highest decision making everyone had a different interest and i think it is unfair or unrealistic to ask uh, uh, your people to become first cyber experts because it's just another layer of information and burden that they won't implement or do but it's to have this 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 bridge between these different business units, communication bridge, both uh, preparing messages for external and internal stakeholders. And the last thing I will say, very last thing, is not your spokesperson or your communication person is not necessarily always the best placed person for stakeholder engagement, right? Here comes to the principle of liking. If you want to incentivize behaviors, You also need change agents within your organizations that people can resonate. Even your most critical uh, person would be a great model, right? To start with them and then they can help you uh, influence and change behaviors uh, uh, with people that relate to them.
1: Absolutely. In fact, there is a lot of research on the role of change agents in helping organizations Deal with different levels and types of change, and that could probably be a discussion for another day. Another point I'd like to make, uh, which aligns with what you said, and that goes back to this assumption about people, about workers. Uh, We definitely don't expect everyone to be a cybersecurity expert, but we do want to raise the overall level of awareness, overall level of knowledge, because each person is a potential point of vulnerability. But the whole approach to mobilizing support to uh, incentivizing the right kinds of behavior has to be anchored by the belief that when people come to work, they come to work with good intentions they come to work to do good things. And this, I'm you know, i stealing this quote, I'm paraphrasing this quote from a good friend of mine who is a CEO of a major corporation and who said it very well. He said, Dave, I always will believe, will assume that people come to work to help, to do good things, to do great things. So it, we are not talking about people who are unwilling to change, you're unwilling to you know, adjust their behaviors. It's a matter of how you communicate, how, do you, how you relate to them. But recognition of these factors, um, becoming aware of all the, or, or at least becoming knowledgeable in the fields that allows you to bring about this change in mindset, this change in culture, Or to enhance the level of human capability, that's an area that organizations need to more carefully think about, needs to look for the right kinds of expertise to guide them. Uh, Because it is not something that I see organizations normally gravitating to. It's more like here are these cybersecurity trained professionals, they know how to apply the controls. And they're going to guide us. But this discussion we've had, it is still speaks to a human-related control. But the ability to effectively implement, implement it requires, I believe, a very different skill set. Can you speak to that as we wrap up this conversation?
2: Yes, of course. I, I couldn't agree more with, with actually everything you said. I mean. I will speak to this from, from you know uh, expertise, but mostly from experience. Uh, uh, I think we think the change is a linear, right? So we have, we use this uh, change program models like John Cotter, we do all the steps and then we're done, right? Change happens to us. Transitions happen within people, right? There's a different process within people. You need, there's no way around this day you need leadership to drive sustainable change. You need a healthy organizational culture. People want to, you know, people don't wake up in the morning and they want to sabotage their work. They want to sabotage their computer. They're just overloaded often, right? People want to do good. If, if, if you have people working for your organization because they feel committed to your values, right? They, they are part of something bigger. And if you really uh, uh, play into that in the sense, if you really build it, genuinely build it, and not only have training, right? Not only bring outside expertise, is to really make healthy organizational culture and security is ingrained in it because we are working online, right? It's not something ad hoc. It should be basic stuff. If people would do basic cyber hygiene, they don't need to become a cybersecurity expert. They can reduce up to 80% of cyber risk, right? So it is, but if, how can you expect people to do something extra? They don't know how it looks like. They don't know what it is. They perceive it as a burden. They think it's command and control. They don't do it. They will get disciplined or a bad mark on their et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is everyone going to do it? No but it really needs to be at the top. The second thing I will say is every organization needs to have an incident response team or crisis management team. And you need to survey those people who you put in there, their levels of emotional intelligence in the sense on what is the function what is the the requirement they would need to uh, uh, do. If you have someone who has low levels of assertiveness, for example, so they don't necessarily speak up, especially when they feel discomfort, if that person is part of your crisis management or incident response team, it is unlikely they will ring the alarm bell when they see something, right? Because they will perceive it as very uncomfortable, right? And then the alarm bell is is rang too late. And I think one of the, the the complaints of the senior leadership I worked with in NATO was that people didn't tell them early enough the problem because they were so high up, or they were you know they thought that they didn't want to burden them or they didn't want to look bad on them, right? And here's where my Dutch uh, mindset came good in because I always <laughs> spoke my mind, which they appreciated because very few people right speak uh, uh their 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 mind for 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 reasons or because they also feel frustrated when they don't see any action so i think it is it requires leadership and culture and when you invest in those that's how you change transformation is a journey it's not a one they don't don't think we're going to do an organizational change as a, as a, as a one-year program or two-year program. Yes, you can have models and change management processes that get you there, but you always need to have, you know, you need to have a core foundation and have enough flexibility to stay relevant in today's age and to support the people. So also when you hire and attract talent, make sure it's the, the, the right mindset right the right values as well because those people will go above uh, and beyond and and even when the last thing i will say there was a study that one of the top reasons why people have low levels of engagement or are reluctant to change is they don't feel recognized they don't feel appreciated so it's not even the paycheck that is the most important parameter it is recognizing your people. And I don't mean just patting them on the back, but truly recognizing and appreciating and having programs and doing it you know, in a way that you treat people as human beings. Right? There's nothing uh, soft about that. Right? It is essential for business survival. You cannot treat people as numbers anymore, no matter where they come from, right? no matter how their mind is wired. And I think this is what separates us from AI machines.
1: Fabulous. Well, Nadia, I wish we could go on, but in the interest of time, we have to pause here with the intent of picking it back up sometime in the future again. It's been truly a pleasure. Thank you for your time.
2: Thank you, David. It was my pleasure.
1: A special thanks to Nadia El-Fartasi for her time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.
0: The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis, with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.